morning, church. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews, the seventh chapter. And a little bit later, we'll be picking up with verse 22. As you're finding the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, I want to say that we are planning and working toward uh, sometime in August when we will begin to be able to gather again in some limited form and limited capacity, and hopefully by Sunday, uh, as Derek does his Facebook Live uh, thing on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, uh, we'll be able to give you more information about that. Our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 7. We live in a t day and time when virtually everything that we wear is ready-made. In fact, the fashion industry has a word for that. They call it ready-to-wear. Everything I've ever owned was ready-to-wear. It never had anything that was made just specifically for me. But there was a day and time that if you really, if a man wanted to have a suit of clothes that really fit him well, it was required that he go to a tailor and be fitted, and the tailor would make the suit, and thus the term, a tailor-made suit. I remember hearing the story years ago, and it's become one of my favorite stories of a fellow that had saved his money for a long time to own his first tailor-made suit. So he went through the fitting process with the tailor and all that, and, and he looked forward to the day when he was going to be able to try this suit on, and the day came, and, and so he went into the tailor and he put the suit on, and as he looked at the suit, he began to notice that the right arm was longer than the left arm. In fact, the right arm came all the way down to here, and he mentioned it to the tailor, and the tailor said, well, that's no problem. All you gotta do is just kinda pull it up like this and hold it like that, and see, it's perfect. It fits real nice. The guy wasn't real sure about that, but he, he played along, and then he realized that his pants were about to fall down, and, and so he said to the tailor, he said, well, I think this is two or three, two inches uh, large in the waist, and the tailor said, well, that's no problem. All you got to do is put your hand here and tuck it up, and it fits nicely. It's, it's perfect. It's just right. And then he looked down at the left leg. The left leg was longer than the right leg. In fact, it was covering up his shoes, and he pointed that out to the tailor, and the tailor said, well, all you got to do is just bend over here and pull that up a little bit, and, and, and it fits perfectly. It, the suit fits perfectly. So the guy goes walking out of the, the tailor's shop, and he's walking down the street, and a couple of guys see him, and one of them says, man, did you see that guy? He's all twisted up like a pretzel. And the other one said, yeah, but doesn't that suit fit nice? This morning, I'm hearing all of the roars of laughter. See, Derek, he's helping me out here. Since there's nobody here to respond, I have to assume that all of you are roaring with laughter out there. And that's really the message title this morning, Jesus, our tailor-made suit. And that's because Jesus is perfectly fit and needs no adjustments. Our text, as I said, is Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22 through 28. In verse 26, it's kind of what the scripture says. It says, it is fitting, speaking of Jesus, it is fitting that we should have such a high priest. It's fitting, in other words, it's, it's right that we should have one just like Jesus. It's, it's proper because Jesus is just right. And Jesus is a tailor-made Savior. He is exactly what we need. And if you study the life of Christ through the Gospels, as you see Jesus moving in life and interacting with people, Jesus was always exactly what every situation called for. To the blind, he was able to give sight. To the hungry, he was able to give food. To the grieving, he brought comfort. And on and on and on, every part of Jesus' life, he perfectly fit the situation. Even on the cross, as he was giving his life as a perfect sacrifice for us, he was everything that we need as a sacrifice 
and as a Savior. Now, the entire book of Hebrews is about making that point. It's a book of comparisons, actually. All through the book of Hebrews, it is comparing the old covenant of the law, the Mosaic law under Moses, with the new covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. And it concludes in every way that the new covenant is better. Everything about that old covenant was temporary. Everything about the old covenant was to ultimately be completed and fulfilled in the new covenant. And so Jesus is the, the scripture talks about him being the guarantor of this new covenant. Jesus is everything that we need. Now our text this morning particularly draws out several reasons that Jesus is exactly what we need, that Jesus is fitting, that it is fitting that we should have him as we have him, that Jesus is our tailor-made Savior. And the first reason in verse 22 is because he is the original promise keeper. Look at verse 22. Um, James just mentioned it. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. There's a lot to unpack in this uh, rather small verse, but, but there are some words in here uh, that are, are very impactful to how we understand what Hebrews is trying to communicate. I want you to, for a moment, focus on the word better. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This indicates that there is a comparison that is being made here. Uh, that, that, that the author of Hebrews is comparing two covenants here. The old covenant made between God and Moses, ratified at Sinai, and the new covenant, the covenant of grace that you and I, assuming you are a believer in Christ, have in Christ. And so um, what he is saying here essentially is that the new covenant is better than the old one. Why? Well, as just uh, James just mentioned, the old one was, was incomplete. It, it wasn't capable of fulfilling several things that are important to us that the new covenant can. Uh, the old covenant was good. It served a good purpose, but, but it, it could not accomplish what Jesus' covenant of grace accomplishes for us. It cannot permanently deal with sin. The new covenant can. And, and you need to understand that as we begin talking about these covenants, that Jesus is central to this new covenant, that he is, he is throughout the entirety of this new covenant. You cannot talk about the new covenant without talking about Jesus because he is central to everything in it. For one, he's the object of sacrifice in the new covenant. So remember several weeks ago, we talked about the Old Testament sacrificial system. And, and what we said, there was a word we used there in that sermon that sacrifices grant us a reprieve from the penalty of sin, but not full fulfillment or not full forgiveness. It's a reprieve. It's a temporary, it's like, hey, uh, this will do for now, but next year you're going to have to do it again. And, and remember, we, we talked about it, it was like a credit card, a spiritual credit card, a sacrificial credit card that keeps stacking up debt. And so every year for the Day of Atonement, uh, the high priest would, would make sacrifices, and, and it wouldn't give forgiveness of sin. It would bring reprieve. It would just charge up on that credit card. And so every year that, that charge got greater and greater. The debt got more and more and more uh, uh, difficult to overcome. And, and then we get to the new covenant, and, and what we find out is that Jesus' sacrifice brings full forgiveness, that the, the debt is paid in full. The credit card is wiped out. Praise God for that. If you've ever had credit card debt, and you know how insurmountable it feels to get past that debt, the day that you get that thing paid off, you clip that thing in half, throw it in the trash, and are forever, thank the Lord, released from that debt. And then Jesus, take out a new one. 
And then take out a new one, exactly, <laughs> America. Jesus' sacrifice is full and lasting. He's not just any unblem uh, unblemished lamb. He is the perfect son of God. He lays his life down as the object of sacrifice in this new covenant. Beyond that, he is the object of God's wrath. So remember, once again, in that sermon, we talked about how his blood serves as a propitiation for God's wrath or an atonement for God's wrath, depending on the translation that you are reading. In other words, Jesus didn't just lay his life down as a sacrifice, but he took on the full force of God's wrath burning against sin. And James made the point in that sermon, and if you, if you didn't listen to it, it was before, I think it was three or four weeks ago, uh, in order for God to be just, and, and we believe God is just, right? God is just in everything that he does. In order for him to be just, his wrath must be poured out against sin. Right. And so he can't just pretend there's no penalty here. He can't just play nice, right? That would make him mm -hmm. not just. And we don't want an unjust God. We want a just God. So Jesus comes along. He's not only the object of sacrifice, but he is the object of God's wrath. He takes on God's wrath as our substitute. That's an important word. Mm -hmm. He is our substitutionary atonement for sin. He stands in our place and takes on the full brunt of God's wrath. So he's not only the object of sacrifice, he's the object of God's wrath, but then also, and this is important, this is where Hebrews 7 really ties in, he is the one offering the object of sacrifice. Hmm. So verse 2, or 22, says that he is the guarantor of a better covenant. What does that mean? In order to understand what the, how the guarantor language plays out, we got to understand the context of chapter 7. Chapter 7 is saying that Jesus is not only the perfect sacrifice, he's not only the recipient of God's wrath, but he's the priest who offers the sacrifice before God. So once again, we have to go back and look at the old covenant system, the sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, there are lots of sacrifices that are to be made. In fact, if you uh, ever find yourself bored uh, and you want to read something you've probably never read before, Leviticus chapters 1 through 6 uh, outline all of the different kinds of sacrifices that were to be made in the Old Covenant system. And, and as you read that, what you find out is the only people who are able to make these sacrifices are the priests. The priests are the ones who offer these sacrifices daily, monthly, of course yearly, as I mentioned a moment ago, the high priest would, would make the, the, the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. That was the most important one. But all of it was done by priests and by priests alone. In order to be qualified as a priest, you had to be born from a specific family line. Not just anybody could be a, a priest. It wasn't something you just went to seminary school and I'm going to be a priest. You don't <laughs> enroll in the priesthood. Uh, you had to be a Levite. In other words, you had to be born from the tribe of Levi. So if you read in Exodus uh, chapter 24, Aaron, Moses' brother, is the first one who becomes the high priest. The priesthood is established. Uh, Leviticus 16 talks about this as well. Uh, Aaron begins the priesthood because he is from the tribe of Levi. He's a Levite. In fact, the book of Leviticus has that Levite term in it. It's because it's the priestly law um, that is discussed in that book. So Levites are the only ones who can be priest. Now, this presents a problem. Uh, if, you are, if you are intimately familiar with Jesus' genealogy, 
then you know right away that something is amiss here. Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is the priest of this new covenant. We know that only Levites can become priests. And if you read Jesus' genealogy, you quickly find out Jesus isn't of the tribe of Levi. Mm -hmm. He's from the tribe of Judah. Right. And so how is this possible that Jesus can be a priest of this new covenant when he's not even qualified by birth to be one? And the answer is very simple, because God said so. Verse 21, look at it. It says, but this one was made a priest, talking about Jesus, with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So listen, here's how this works. Uh, God sets up certain systems, okay? Uh, One being that you have to be born a Levite in order to become a priest. This is God's way of dealing with the priesthood in the Old Covenant. He's the the final say, right? He's the Supreme Court. He is the, the, the final judge, which means that though this system is in place, if God comes along and says, yeah, I know he's not a Levite, but you're a judge anyway, or you're a priest anyway, then it's fine. It's on the table. And that's exactly what has happened here. God said he would be a priest forever. Doesn't matter about your lineage. You will be a priest. So he's not only the object of sacrifice, the object of God's wrath, but he's the one offering the object of sacrifice as well. And this is so important. Come back now to this word guarantor. What does this mean? It means that Jesus is able to guarantee what God has said will be upheld. In other words, that in the new covenant, God has covenanted with us, and in this covenant, he has made promises, and what Jesus is, his role is that he is able to guarantee that these promises that God has made to us will be kept. He's the ultimate promise keeper. What are the promises of this covenant? Sin will be fully forgiven. That's a pretty big promise. Uh, We'll be granted adoption as sons and daughters of God. We're we're in God's family now. Praise the Lord for that. We have the promise of eternal life. We'll never die. We'll never perish. We'll be with him in eternity. Praise God for that. We'll have the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide us through this life on this earth. So we don't even have to wonder about any of this stuff. God God has said, hey, it's going to be difficult. People are going to persecute you. People are going to want to kill you. The enemy is going to come and deceive you. There's going to be all these problems. So I'm going to give you a guide. I'm going to give you a helper, the indwelling power of my Holy Spirit. He says that if we walk in his commandments, that we'll be granted not just life eternal, but life abundantly, Mm -hmm. an abundant life. We're given the unearned favor of God. The new covenant is filled with promises, promises that are really fantastic. And none of these promises, by the way, are present in the Old Testament. This is why the new covenant is better than the old. And Jesus is the guarantor. He says, hey, I know that there are a lot of great promises that God is making you in this covenant, and I personally guarantee that these promises will be kept. It's almost too good to be true, isn't it? (laughs) Like, if you're a skeptic like me, I'm I'm, I'm a very big skeptic about anything. Anything that I read, anything that comes out, my immediate thought is like, I don't know about this. I'm going to need to think about this, right? So how do I know that this is legit? How, it says that Jesus is the guarantor, but how do I know that God is definitely going to uphold his promise? How can Jesus definitely guarantee this? Because he takes away all the objections because he's central as the object of sacrifice, the object of God's grace, and the one who offers it. In other words, think about this. I, can, I could think, well, what if the sacrifice wasn't good enough? Jesus says, I am the sacrifice. I am good enough. 
You can trust me. I can guarantee it. Well, what if God is still angry with me, though? I mean, how do I know that he won't condemn me after all? Jesus says, look, I stood in your place, and I took upon God's wrath Mm -hmm. for you. Well, what if, Jesus, what if the sacrifice wasn't done right? I mean, what if the priest missed something? Jesus says, I am the priest. Mm -hmm. I've missed nothing, not by birth, but by God's oath, and I've done everything according to how God desired it to be done. You see, Jesus can guarantee the promises of God because he himself did the work to ensure it was done the right way. He can guarantee it because it's his work. To call into question the, the, the integrity of God is to call into question the very work of Jesus himself. Right. He's the tailor-made savior, first, because he's the ultimate promise keeper. Secondly, he's the eternal survivor. He's the eternal survivor. I had to look this up because I was really curious about what the longest-running reality TV show was this week. And, and I was almost certain that it was the show Survivor. It it seems like it's been on my entire life. Um, But it's actually number four in longest-running reality TV shows. Uh, Number one, starting March 11th, 1989, bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? Cops, (laughs) right? Cops has been on the longest. Uh, Numbers two and three are actually shows from uh, MTV, Music Television, the only television show not about music at all now. Um, the Real World coming in at number two. And The Challenge, I've never even heard of that. Number four, number four, beginning May 31st, the year 2000, is the show Survivor. Shout out Morgan Phillips, the ultimate yeah. Survivor fan. Uh, Survivor takes place, if you're not familiar with the show, in a, uh, it takes strangers into a remote place, typically an island. They have to provide for themselves food, water, shelter, fire, um, they compete against one another in various different challenges for uh, various rewards. And, of course, the big thing that they, cha- they, they, they compete for every week is immunity uh, from being voted off. So you're forming kind of these factions on the show, and it's, it's a lot of strategy in that way. And, and the hope is that you win the challenge, and then no one can vote you off anyway. So you can make everyone mad, which is probably something I would do if I were on the show. Seems that I have that capacity. Just make everyone mad. Um, so I would hope for immunity uh, every week so that no one can vote me off. And, of course, the person that, that wins, the, the last remaining person on the island is dubbed the sole survivor, and they're granted a million dollars. It's a super successful show. I know a lot of people who really love it. I thought about it this week because essentially what Hebrews 7 is saying is that Jesus is the eternal survivor. Literally. He never dies. He wins every season. Well, he never dies. Technically, he did die once, but then he undied. So he, he's, he, is, the, uh, he is the ultimate survivor, the eternal survivor, uh, the sole survivor. And this brings us back to the discussion of the comparison then between the new covenant and the old covenant. As I mentioned, the Old Covenant was was mediated by the priesthood, specifically the Levites. And and, and what did the priests do? What was their responsibilities? They performed sacrifices, but but more specifically, they were mediators. They were the go-between between men and God. Man could not have fellowship with God. The fellowship was broken because of sin. And so uh, priests had to sacrifice and perform rituals on a daily basis to allow this fellowship to continue between Israel and Yahweh. And, and that was a cycle that went on and on and on and on. Why? Because no sacrifice was perfect. There were daily, monthly, yearly sacrifices, and all of the animals that were used in sacrifice were not capable, as I mentioned a moment ago, of bringing full forgiveness of sin. 
So it was a constant cycle of, of sacrifice that had to be made on a repeated basis. But there was another problem. The priests themselves kept dying. <laughs> so the Levites kept producing priests. The younger would replace the older. The younger became the older. That He would die. Then he would be replaced by another. And the cycle would continue on and on and on. This is why Hebrews 7, 23 and 24 says, if you have your Bible open, look at it. So you know I'm not making this up. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They couldn't go on. You know those senators and Congress people that have been in office for like 50 years, they're eventually going to die, right? They can't be in office forever. Same with the priesthood. It, death prevented them from being in office. But then look what it says. But he holds his priesthood, talking about ah. Jesus, permanently Amen. because he continues forever. See, one of the reasons Jesus is the guarantor of this covenant, this better covenant, is that he's the eternal survivor. He's the only priest that lives forever. And it's kind of ironic because he's not as busy as the other priests either. Have you noticed that? <laughs> right. Hebrews 10, 11. He just has to make one sacrifice. Yeah. Hebrews 10, 11. It says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The old priesthood worked their tails off. They were never taking a break. They had to sacrifice constantly, all the way up until they died. And then Jesus comes along He's the only priest that lives forever. He isn't busy at all. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14, it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, one, one, numero uno, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, he, he did his work, and then he sat down. <laughs> and he's now at the right hand of the Father. What is he doing? He's interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, Romans 8.34. He is constantly now mediating between us and the Father. So whenever you're praying something and it's bogus, it's some weird prayer that came from the flesh and not the spirit. Lord, give me this car because I, I think it'll just be the best thing in the world. Jesus is mediating for you going, Father, don't listen to that. He, he doesn't need a car. <laughs> No, don't do that. Don't do it. He's mediating between us and the Father. It's a really amazing picture. He's not lacking at all. He is complete. His work is complete. He is a tailor-made Savior for you and for me. We can trust him. Why? Because he's the ultimate promise keeper. He can guarantee his work because he's done all the work himself. He was the object of sacrifice, the object of wrath, and the one offering the objects of sacrifice and wrath. He's a priest who has made this sacrifice once and for all, and he lives forever. He's the eternal survivor. He continuously lives, interceding for us. And lastly, hmm. he is the perfect provider. I love that picture of those Old Testament priests just, I mean, just every day of their lives. Often, and then they got old and they croaked and a new one took their place. And Jesus comes along and makes one sacrifice and it's done. The sacrificial system is over. The priesthood is over. No longer need them. Why? Because Hebrews says because he is our great high priest... He can guarantee this because he ever lives. He never dies. And he made the one and only perfect sacrifice. And that brings us to verse 25, which is the third reason Jesus is a tailor-made Savior is because he is the perfect provider. Verse 24, 25 says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Remember Jesus said... 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Verse 25 is saying the same thing, that we can draw near to God, but we can only do so by drawing near through Him. But I want you to notice the first word of this verse. It's the word, therefore. And we often say, whenever you see the word, therefore, in the Scripture, you stop and ask yourself the question, what is it therefore? Because this word is a connecting word. It connects what is being said to what has just been said. So what is it that has just been said? Well, it has just been said that Jesus was our perfect high priest. In other words, unlike the Old Testament priests who had sin of their own, had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could even offer sacrifices for the people, Jesus did not have to offer sacrifice for himself because he was a perfect high priest without sin, unlike those other priests. Jesus, therefore, is the original promise keeper. Therefore, he can guarantee for us this new covenant in his blood, this covenant of grace. Not only that, he's the original survivor. As they died, Jesus never dies. He ever lives. Therefore, he can save forever. There's the word. That's the connecting word. Because of all these things, therefore, he can save forever those who draw near to God through him. Now, I want you to think for a moment, really for the rest of my time, about this one word, the word saved. It says that Jesus can save those who draw near to the Father through him. And you know, in evangelical circles, that is a word that we use an awful lot. In fact, we use that word in various forms so much that I think it has lost its impact. We say, I'm saved. Well, what do you mean by that? We say, Jesus saves. Well, what do you mean by that? We say, well, we have salvation. All of these are the same concept and the same word. But what does it really mean to be saved? The Hebrew word that is translated as save means the opposite. Now get this, means the opposite of being fenced in. I like that picture. You can have this very small, confined space... That's not saved. But saved means to the exact opposite of being fenced in. It means to have wide and spacious area. It means to have plenty of room. Ultimately, it means to be set free. It means to be unbound when the boundaries are moved out. Now, again, there's a great irony here. And the irony is that so many people, so many people say, I don't want to follow Christ. I don't want to commit my life to Christ because I want to be free. Do you get the irony in that statement? To be saved is to be free, to have these boundaries moved out, But people say, but I don't want to be saved because I want to be free. What they mean is I want to be free to live my life the way I want to. And so the irony of that statement is they are actually bound up when they think they're free 
and they don't even realize that they are actually bound up and that the only way to be free is to be set free by salvation. You say, well, what are they bound by? Well, the scripture tells us very clearly that until you come to faith in Christ, you are bound up by your flesh. You are bound up by the penalty of sin. You still have the wrath of God coming upon you. But come back to the idea of the flesh for a moment. Someone who does not submit themselves to the Spirit of God in Christ Jesus, then what are they submitting themselves to? Well, they're submitting themselves to their flesh. And their fleshly desires are actually dictating what they are going to do. And they are bound by their inability to experience freedom in Christ. They are bound up by the eternal penalty of their own sin, which is going to lead to eternal death. That's the imagery that Jesus used in John 8, 36. He was coming off of this Old Testament imagery of the meaning of salvation. In John 8, 36, he says, If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. In other words, outside of Christ, there is no real freedom. Now, I want you to get that. When you say, I'm saved, what do you mean? Well, you probably mean a lot of things. You mean, my sin has been forgiven, the sacrifice of Christ has been placed upon me, I'm going to have eternal life, and all of those things are true. All of those things come in salvation. But to be saved literally means to be set free, set free from the boundaries, to have free room to roam, to not be bound up by the tyranny of sin and of the flesh. Now, allow me for the rest of my time, I want, I, I want to illustrate this from my own life experience. You hear me periodically talk about my daddy. And the reason I do is because so much of my life has been informed by him. The last time that I saw my daddy alive was I was in my 18th year of life. I had been a Christian a very short time, really just a couple of months. And normally when my dad would come to town, because I had not actually lived with him since I was about eight years old. So about the first eight years of my life, he and my mother were married and, and, and everything. And, and I had not really lived with him uh, uh, since that time. So he, periodically, uh, as he roamed around, he would come to town and he would come by and he would pick me up. And typically what we would do is we'd go to a dive. That's what we call a real, not just a bar, but I mean the low bar. That was at the edge of town in my little hometown, Monahans, called the Blue Lantern. You know, I've played a lot of music and a lot of dives. A lot of dives. You've been there. And you, watched, you watched those people living life out I was there, a, man. I was a professional diver for yeah, some yeah, time. Yeah, living and loving life. Well, I spent a lot of time in dives shooting pool. Yeah. And so my dad would pick me up, and we would go out to the Blue Lantern, and I would shoot pool with the drunks for money and for beer. And I'd get the money, and he'd get the beer. Because as a teenager, I spent a lot of time in the local pool hall. And sometimes it would be 24 and 36 hours unending gambling, shooting pool. And I made a lot of money shooting pool. And so my, when my dad would pick me up, 14, 15, 16 years old, we would go out to the Blue Lantern and I would take money off all of the drunks and win him beer and he'd sit there and, and get drunk. And he was so, so proud of his boy, you know? I mean, wonderful son. And, but this time, I'd been a Christian for a couple of months. This time when he came to pick me up, I told him, I said, Dad, I'm not going to the Blue Lantern with you. And I told him why. 
And I remember the conversation like it was yesterday. He chided me because it made me angry, actually. He chided me about this whole thing about going to church and what's all this stuff and why won't you go to the Blue Lantern and we'll have a good time and all of that kind of stuff. And he said, well, it must be the girls. That's why you're going to church. And I said, well, no, Dad, that's not, not why I'm going to church. But that is an added bonus. I did discover there's a lot of good-looking girls at church. But I remember his car, the car that he was driving. And I'm smiling now, not because it's funny, but just, I guess, I don't know why I'm smiling. Um, but I remember his car. It was an beat-up old Oldsmobile 98. You remember those old cars? This was back in the early 70s, and by this time it was probably 8 or 10 years old, the car, because it was an old beat-up Olds 98. Probably thing weighed 10,000 pounds. It was made out of huge, you know, it had this huge motor in it, and they were just boats that went down the highway. But I remember over the driver's side, when I was sitting in the passenger side, my dad was sitting behind the wheel, uh, there was a hole in the windshield over on the left side of the windshield, and I asked him about it, and I said, what's the hole? And it was just a perfectly little round little hole, and he said, oh, some bar fire put a beer bottle through it. <laughs> wow. Just a few months later, September the 29th, 1972, my father died of his alcoholism. He was 41 years of age, 41. He died without a penny in his pocket. He had no ID on his body. The next morning, I buried him, my first funeral that I ever performed. I'd been a Christian by this time about six months. And for 47 years of my life, I'm 66 years old now, for 47 years of my life, I've contemplated the lessons of my daddy's life. And the supreme irony of his life I've come to understand was that he thought he was free. He would say he was free if you asked him. And what he would mean by that is that he was free to live his life the way he wanted. But the truth is, and I understand this today, was that he never was free. He was always bound up. He was always enslaved. He was always boxed into very small boundaries. What, what was he imprisoned by? He was imprisoned by his flesh. He was imprisoned by his sin that ultimately destroyed him. So let me give you a principle that Jesus and my daddy taught me. The only freedom you have is the freedom to choose whose servant you will become. You will serve someone. If you do not submit yourself to Christ, if you do not draw near to God through Him and serve Him and be set free, you will serve yourself. And you will be the servant of self. You will be the slave of your flesh. And you will ultimately reap the reward. You may spend your life thinking you are free. But what you are doing is you are living your life answering the dictates of your flesh, what seems right to you. All the time, bound up by your flesh that you are the servant of. The alternative of that is that you can choose to draw near to God through Him who is the guarantor He's the promise keeper. He's the 
ultimate survivor who ever lives, and he's the ultimate provider of this freedom that we so desperately are seeking for and looking for in all the wrong places. If you draw near to the Father through him, then Jesus says, I will set you free. I will release you into the open spaces. I will move out the boundaries that are constricting your opportunity to experience life. You see, that's what this text is saying, that Jesus is able to save, that Jesus is able to set free those who draw near to the Father through Him. Why? Because He's the perfect guarantor. He ever lives to make intercession, and therefore He has everything that we need to live life the way that the Father desires for us to have as much as can be had here on this earth, in this world, and then ultimately will be transported into that place that we call eternal life when we die. This is salvation. This is what it means to be set free. It means to have the boundaries expanded. And he says about this salvation in this text that this is a continuing salvation that he offers. It says he is able to save... And in the original language, the tense, the verb tense of this word means to be continuous action. So he's able to save and to continue to save. I love to speak of salvation in 3D. He has saved us from our past. He is saving us in our present. And he will save us in our future. He is able to provide continuing salvation, continuing freedom. But the second thing, it says that it is not only continuing this salvation, but it is also complete. Notice he says he is able to save forever. The King James, if you have the King James, translated over two centuries ago, the King James says he is able to save to the uttermost. And I've heard it put this way, that Jesus is able to save from the guttermost to the uttermost. And that is true. He can save from the guttermost to the uttermost. He can save forever. His provision of freedom is continuing. It's past, it's present, it's future. And it is complete because it is forever. It will never be taken away. You see, Jesus and my daddy taught me that. It's really the only thing of value that I think my daddy ever did teach me. Jesus taught me that because he has done what he promised me he would do. He has shown me life. He has set me free from the penalty of sin and death. He's done that. He he has guaranteed his promise and he has produced his promise. That's what Jesus taught me. What my daddy taught me by his life is that he showed me what my life would have been without Jesus. He showed me what my life could have been because I was headed to become that, what my life would have been without Jesus. Constricted, confined, enslaved to my own desires, enslaved to the flesh, thinking all of the time I'm free when I wasn't. And when I submitted myself to 
Jesus, the ultimate high priest, the guarantor, the one who lives forever, the one who's able to set me free. When I, when I gave my life to Christ, all of a sudden I was set free to experience life differently. I've lived 25 years longer already than my father did. But I'll tell you this, I lived more in the first month of knowing Christ than my daddy lived in all of his 41 years on earth. Because I understood what I had been set free from. That's what my daddy taught me. Jesus is our tailor-made Savior. He is just right. And it is fitting, as our text says, that we should have a Savior like him. For unlike the other intermediaries, the other priests, who had sinned within themselves and ultimately died, Jesus had no sin, so he could be the guarantor of this perfect covenant because he offered a perfect sacrifice. And he ever lives now, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. And he is able to remove us from the restrictions of our sin and death and of our flesh. Folks, that's what it means to be saved. And if you're still living in bondage to your flesh, if you're still living a life that looks like the world, perhaps you have not been set free. Perhaps you've not been saved. And each and every one of us has to look at our lives and answer that question. By no means have I lived a perfect life. I don't presume to do that. I'm a very flawed man with feet of clay, but I know I live a life in Christ Jesus that I could have never lived without him, never lived without him, not a chance. And I know that because he guarantees this covenant, that when I do die, I will immediately enter into that experience of life abundant, just like him, as 1 John says, for we do not know what we shall be like, but we know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he really is. Jesus taught me what it means to be free. My daddy taught me what it means to be bound up. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your word that is just so encouraging. Even as we look at this text how you have made this so evident in the way that you have worked sovereignly through the time of history. Making your plan of salvation, acting it out over the centuries and over the millennia, acting it out patiently to bring it to the point of Jesus. And I pray today that your Holy Spirit would open the hearts and the minds and the eyes of folks here that are listening. And some who think they are free in Christ, and really their life reflects that they are still bound by the flesh and still have the penalty of your wrath to come. And that today they would draw near to you through him, the only way to come. And let his forgiveness, freedom, and grace flow. This is our prayer in the name of of our tailor-made Savior, Jesus.
Amen. Amen. God bless you.